We're going to do something now a little out of the ordinary, so we'll keep the kids here till this is over. Next week, we're going to have our congregational meeting. We're going to have a significant change in the leadership uh, of the church, and we're going to need to vote on a new deacon. Mark Friedrich, who needs a break, has been directing our prep school since the beginning of this church, which was in uh, 2004. So he has uh, performed above and beyond the call of duty. He has done a wonderful job, and I thoroughly understand his need to take a break. And he has, uh, we, we've been working on this. We had plan A, which was somehow destroyed right in the middle of the COVID outbreak. So we had to go to plan B. Not that that's less. In fact, I'm happier. So we have a man in the congregation. He and his uh, wife have been faithful, faithfully coming for, uh, several years. His name is Russell Gates, and he is going to come up and introduce himself and give us his testimony so that we can all get to know him a little bit better in preparation for a vote of approval for him for the deacon board next week. So, Russell, come on up. I um, This is part of the test. You've got five minutes. I always say that to every speaker, and they take 10 or 15 anyway. But if I, don't, if I said 10... We'd be here all day, so nobody watches the clock. Watch out. Thank you, Dr. Dean. Uh, as Dr. Dean said, uh, my name is Russell Gates. Uh, my wife and I have been coming to West Houston Bible for about five years. I think we've been members for about three, two or three years. Uh, hard to say, but uh, we've been coming. Um, I know most of you, or at least at least by face, um, some I haven't gotten to speak to, but others definitely, you know, whether we're doing the the picnic out at the ranch or, or whatever, I've, I've definitely had a, at least an opportunity to see everyone. Um, part of my testimony, or my, my five-minute testimony, um, I grew up not far from here, just north in, in Humble, Texas. Uh, my mom um, is a Christian, but it, it's, it's, it's difficult to describe as, as a kid. Um, she was involved in different organizations. I mean, the, the best way to really describe it is is, is kind of cultish. Um, I remember being part of a group where um, each of the members were referred to as colors. Like my mom's best friend was yellow. She was green. As a kid, this was exciting. Um, then she went to another, like, Japanese group called Mahakari, and then they did other metaphysical stuff. Um, and there were there were a few more. I mean, she did some stuff with with Cherokee Indians, and you know, for me as a kid, it was exciting. Go to these different groups, see this different stuff, and it, she did talk about Christ. And I had a little bit of of introduction to who he was, at least as a person, not not as a deity, but as a person. Um, and on the flip side of that, my 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 father is Jewish. Um, he wasn't necessarily into all the other metaphysical stuff, but um, he was in, involved in the Jewish community. Um, at about seven years old, my, my parents got divorced, so I would spend you know time with my mom doing her thing, and then my dad would take us every other week to Temple Emmanuel on Bissonette Street, not too far from uh, Rice University. There I'd study Hebrew and learn different things about the Torah, and not not really having any kind of a connection with, with God, just really having, um, let's call it an education, a, a worldly education, because my, my father's view on Judaism wasn't necessarily like, this is God, and I'm going to worship. It's, okay, we're Jewish. You need to learn Hebrew. You need to be part of the community. You need to participate. Um, and at about, I, I would say, nine or ten years old, there was a particular Sunday uh, where I was where I was at Hebrew school, and we had to pick... Um, we had to pick someone that was a role model. And unbeknownst to me, I had no idea the Jewish view on Christ. I, I chose Jesus. And I was I was basically embarrassed by the teacher. It, it was it was difficult. No, that's that's not a good answer. You need to give another one. I was confused. I had no idea that Christ wasn't accepted in the Jewish faith. That was that was tough. Around that time, I decided to be atheist. I, I was just like, there is no way there's a God. This is crazy. I, I would start to see that my mom was jumping from group to group. My dad was introducing me to something that just didn't even make any sense. And I, I kept this view. And, and when I would have conversations with people about Christ, I would argue, there's no way. Look at the Holocaust. You, you guys have heard all the all the rebuttal, and that was me. I, I was that person. Um, in 2003, um, this is this is many years later. Um, 
I guess I was about 21 at the time. Um, I met my wife randomly amongst mutual friends. Um, we kept running into each other and running into each other. And in 2006, three years later after we, we met, we started dating. And um, she was a believer, not a, a super faithful believer, but she grew up a Southern Baptist in the church. And unfortunately, I, I started to pull her away from that belief, from my belief, because I was so strong in the other direction. Um, in 2007, about a year, a year after we'd started dating, I had mentioned to her, hey, you know, we can get married or, you know, we would had some money set aside or we can go buy a home. And she said, let's buy a house. So obviously we did the wrong thing. We went and we bought a home, and um, uh, we ended. We did end up getting married um, in in 2010. So about three years later, we got married. Uh, you know, but but during that time, leading up to our marriage, my wife owned a salon and she was a hairdresser. So which meant she worked basically Tuesday through Saturday, and she would come home anywhere between 8 a.m. I'm sorry, she'd come home anywhere between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. every day, and I would work a normal you know, nine to five job. So really the only time we had together was really Sunday and Monday uh, or Monday after work when I got home, which didn't lead to a good relationship, didn't lead to a good marriage. Um, I was very worldly. I, I I didn't have any any selfless motivation. It was it was all selfish, all, all for me. What, what, what can I do for me? And that led to disaster within the marriage. And it all came to a head in summer of 2011. And... Basically, it, uh, our, our marriage was falling apart. Uh, been together about four and a half years. Been married uh, just a little over a year. And thank God, Bree talked to me about Christ. And I remember accepting Christ and believing in Him and changing our lives. Um, it, at that point in time, we really didn't know what to do. You know, I, I had so much pressure was relieved for me. The, the disbelief is hard. It's 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 rigid. It's 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 selfish and it's it's difficult. Now, while everything didn't miraculously change overnight, um, our, our mindset did. And we started looking for a church, and Bree was doing hair um, from a woman that had uh, attended Baraka for years. And um, after the colonel had left, she she kind of left and was, you know, spent some time looking for another church, and she'd found somebody, and it was online. And she told my wife about it. My wife came home, and she's like, hey, you know, I was doing someone's hair today, and she told me about this church that she really likes. So Bree and I listened, and it, it was different teaching than I'd ever heard. Um, uh, it, it was verse by verse, and uh, his name is Pastor Joseph Chagru. He he teaches at um, Grace and Truth Ministries in Salem, Oregon. And Bree and I would find ourselves waking up um, and listening to, to class for like five hours. We would drink, you know, coffee and, and sit on the back porch and, and listen. And about uh, two or three months after this, we had decided, hey, you know what? We have some savings. We, we, can, we can leave. We can go. And we actually, we packed our stuff and made everybody think we were crazy. <laughs> and we moved to Oregon. And uh, we lived there for about five years. It was great. Uh, I became best friends with the pastor. Uh, Joe, Joe is still one of my very good friends. And... Um, we stayed there and we learned. Uh, about um, four four years into it, three and a half years into it, uh, Bree and I decided that we wanted to have a kid. Um, so we did. And all you most likely see Jake running around. Um, and at that time, I was going through some health issues and I wasn't satisfied with the way the hospitals were in, in, in Portland. And I was like, you know, if we get back to Texas, um, you know, the medical center is great. We can figure out what's going on with me. And she's like, well, I, I want to go home anyway. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's go to Houston. So we packed up our bags. We we moved back. Um, I took some time off work. Um, ended up starting work again a couple months later. And we were still listening online, and you know, not not as faithfully as we were when we were face to face. And um, about the time right before Jake turned one, um, Bree's up in the living room. She's she's for those of you who know her. She's a vigorous vigorous researcher <laughs> searcher. So. She's in the living room. I'm asleep, and she comes into the room. She's like, I found it. I found it. I found it. And I'm like, what? She's like, you have to hear. So half asleep, I go in there, and I listen to a message that, that Dr. Dean was giving. And, uh, you know, that that's the rest of the story. It, it, it brought us in. I think we were here um, a week later, right before – I think it was a couple weeks before Jake started walking, right before his first birthday, and he just turned six um, a few weeks ago. And uh, – that's how we found ourselves here. And in addition to that, just, you know, as my own 
spiritual journey goes. Um, obviously, all that life before finding Christ, um, you have consequences for sin and a sinful life. Twelve years into learning doctrine, just just recently, um, I might add that you know the, the the life without Christ is very self-serving, and recently, my mind has been switched to serving others and I find it no coincidence to be promoted in the prep school and then be up for deacon um, I appreciate your teaching Dr. Dean uh, being part of my journey and I, I appreciate this church so thank you guys very much thank you Russell um Russell's not, we're not going to put the whole load of prep school right on top of him, but um, he's going to have someone working with him that's Alex Monzone, and um, uh, maybe Alex, I'll have Alex give a testimony next week, but Alex was one of my CrossFit coaches about 10 years ago, so I have known him since before, I think since he, before he met his wife, but they've been personally responsible for increasing the size of the nursery over the last few years, so... I decided he, he, you know, he needs to be involved in, uh, in, you know, overseeing the teaching because he's got kids. He's got a vested interest in that. But, but I didn't want to put the load of being a deacon on him because he has all these kids. So, uh, he needs to put the priorities on that family right now and we need to, uh, support, support that. So, uh, we're thankful for both of them and their, their willingness to serve. And I've been meeting with them on a monthly basis, going through a lot of uh, a lot of different material. So that's why I have um, going to be nominating Russell to be on the on the deacon board. All right. At this time, we'll dismiss the kids to go back to their prep school classes. Scripture says, "Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God." Desire the unadulterated milk of the word that you may, like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by virtue and glory, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we begin, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have men that are focused upon your word, focused upon learning your word, assimilating it into their thinking, applying it in their lives, and being a godly example to others and to their wives and to their children. And Father, we pray for more that they may, uh, we may increase their number because this brings glory to you. Father, we realize the importance of our prep school in training the next generation and supporting these families, and we pray that you would continue to provide the leadership, the teachers that we need in order to fulfill that mission. And Father, we know that we can come to you and are to come to you with every uh, request that we have and to depend upon you in faith and trust, and we are also to be to let your grace be a pattern for our lives, that we may emulate you and be an example to others of what grace means. And we ask that you guide and direct our thinking this morning as we study this. In Christ's name, amen. All right, our study coming out of Ephesians, our Ephesians study, we are reflecting on ways in which God has given us to be able to deal with the enemies of the Christian life. So we've been going through these basic spiritual skills. 
A spiritual skill is something you practice. You practice to develop skill. It's not something that just happens. We know of many people that we can think of who are in music industry, whether they're instrumentalists or whether they're vocal. We know of athletes who have great talent. But they had to train. They had to practice. They had to learn discipline. And they had to uh, give up things that other young people would have had as part of their life in order to focus upon training themselves in these other areas. And that's a good good analogy for these spiritual skills. We have to practice them. They don't come naturally. In fact, we always have to struggle with our sin nature because our sin nature wants us to do it ourselves. It pushes us in that direction that we can be uh, independent of God and we can solve these problems uh, on our own. But Scripture says, no, we can't. We have to depend upon God. And so this These spiritual skills are basically a synthesis of many things that are said on the Scripture, and I've always found them to be, you know, a brilliant tool for analyzing situations in life and ways in which we can uh, solve various problems. When I was in my second year of ROTC in college, part of the curriculum was land navigation. Now, some of you guys, because I can look at your hair color, you're old enough to remember maybe getting some training in land navigation. It was also called orienteering. And it actually turned out to be one of the most uh, uh, usable, useful things that I learned in ROTC because uh, later on I was the director of a camp that focused on uh, backpacking and mountaineering and various other things. And we had a base camp up in Colorado, and we would take groups of high school kids and college kids and young adults on these adventure uh, wilderness treks up in, up in Colorado. And I found that I was using those skills. Now, today they have GPS and so a lot of people don't know these skills of orienteering. But uh, about 10 years ago, I was in Israel, and we were I was with a foreign ministry group that had, was taking Christian leaders to Israel. And we were staying at a at kibbutz, Nof Genesar, by what is called the Jesus Boat, that ancient boat they brought out of the Sea of Galilee, and it's one of my favorite places to stay in Israel, because you can get up in the morning, and you're not in a city, and you're in open spaces, and at that time, I was still jogging instead of walking, and so I went out for a morning run, and lo and behold, I got down this trail that they had that weaved through their property, and ran into a group of of guys, an IDF patrol that had just come off of their patrol, and they had been on a three-day land navigation exercise. And they were doing it the original way, with topographical maps and a compass, because you can't always rely on GPS and satellites. And really, that's the way we should learn most things today is the way that they were taught for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and not rely on computers. They're great. They can do a lot more. But on most things, even Bible study, you learn the techniques and the methods and why you do what you do and the tools better if you do it with books. Now, I'm a great lover of Logos, as you know, and Accordance and these other tools because they save a lot of time. But one reason they can save time is because you learn to do it the old-fashioned way. But that's going in a different direction. So here's a topical, topographical map. Uh, some of you have uh, probably never seen a topographical map. So this is kind of the broad picture on the left. You can't read it, but it you can read it over here on the right. It's Uncompagre. National Forest. So I made that large enough so those who are transcribing can go back and figure out how to spell Uncompagre. Uncompagre was a 13,000, is a 13,409 foot peak 
in western Colorado on the western side of the Continental Divide. In fact, the Continental Divide's not very far south of here. And it's outside of Lake City, Colorado. And I've been to the top of it twice. And so uh, you can see all these little lines. Well, each one of those lines probably represents about, about any, it depends. I, I couldn't read the, um, uh, uh, index on the, on the map, but it probably relates to about 50 or 100 feet in elevation. Uh, maybe a little more because this goes up pretty high. And when you see a lot of lines coming together very closely, that means you're looking at a cliff. And, uh, and so this was, uh, an interesting climb going up there. There's not a lot of air. But the point is that, that when you're looking at terrain and you can take a topographical map and if the terrain is pronounced enough, like it is up in the Rocky Mountains, you can spot your key uh, terrain features. You can find creeks and you can see the peak of the mountains and you can see the valleys. And so by eyesight, you can pretty much align that map to uh, what's going on. That's called orienting your map. And so we have to orient our maps to reality because if you don't orient your map to reality, then you're going to get lost, really lost. Okay, and that can be very dangerous. We live in a world today when people don't believe you have to orient your map to reality. You can make up your own reality, and if you believe it hard enough, if you just have faith in faith, you can make your reality come true. You know, one of the fallacies of that is that sooner or later you run into the problem of reality and you get mugged by reality and then it's not real pleasant and you're going to have to redo everything in your life. Last year, because it was almost a year ago when uh, uh, Putin decided he was going to attack Ukraine and it was uh, the last week of February, so that anniversary is coming up. But on that week... I was preparing to leave. I'd already had to postpone my exit a week because I had surprisingly come down with COVID. God had a plan, as you remember, for keeping me there so I could get Jim and Phyllis out. And um, uh, so as as that week progressed, I was ready to go. I, on Monday, I called Sergey, our driver. I said, you're prepared. Your mission is to get me out of here. And he understood, yes, that's my mission. Now, I don't know what was going through, going through his head on Wednesday, but he got divorced from reality. He firmly believed, firmly believed that Putin would not, was not going to attack. And he wasn't going to attack anytime soon if he, if he did eventually. So when three of his friends got a hold of him on Wednesday morning and said, hey, let's go skiing, and the Czech Republic, he said, great, I'll get my stuff together. And they left, and they drove to the Czech Republic and got there that night. Of course, they woke up the next morning, and he had to make a radical adjustment to reality as the Russians invaded Ukraine. Now, I won't lie to you. Jim and I were a little miffed that our driver, and especially our car, was no longer accessible because... He, uh, Sergey lived on the northwest side of Kiev, and we were on the northeast side. And he lived in Bucha, which is uh, the airfield there was taken over by the Russians that Thursday afternoon. And, of course, uh, the rape of Bucha came after that, and there were many uh, criminal atrocities committed by the, uh, by the Russian army. So we just thank God. See, Romans 8.28 wasn't our plan. God said, don't worry about it. I got another plan to get you out, but I got to get him out too. So Sergey was able to get out, and he's still living um, up in uh, Washington State. He'd gone there. His sister lived there, but she couldn't stand their socialism anymore. So a couple of months ago, she moved to Florida. I'm trying to get Sergey to come here. But Sergey told me, he said, what I learned from that is no matter how hard and how firm your belief is, if it's not in something that's true, it's not going to make it true. And that's just a great illustration 
that you can believe you're a boy when you're a girl as hard as you want, but it's not going to make you a boy. You can, you can believe that somehow we're going to change this and change that and bring in a perfect world where there aren't any problems, but guess what? That's a fantasy. You can't ever do that. So your faith is put in the wrong place. You're not oriented to reality. So when you have a map and a compass, you can properly orient to reality. So the map and compass that God has given us are twofold. Just like we need a map and a compass, we need two skills. We need to be oriented to God's grace, and we need to be oriented to God's Word. God's grace, we need to align our thoughts, our actions, our communication to the grace of God. And next week, we'll look at the Word of God. We need to align our, our thoughts and our communication and our actions to the Word of God. That's the, that is reality. But we have too many people in our world who have rejected God's reality, and they are worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. And the result of that is that they have made fools of themselves rather than being wise like they think they are. They have advanced degrees in various academic disciplines from climate science to biology to sociology and political science, and they are doing what Sergey did. They're just making up something they want to be true, but it's not. And as a result of that, Scripture says, professing to be wise, they became fools. Now, we as believers can't afford to do that. If we don't align our thinking to God's grace and to God's word, then we're going to be living in a world that is just a figment of our imagination. And we're not going to be aligned with reality, no matter how harsh or unpleasant uh, reality may be. So when we started looking at at in this section of Ephesians in Ephesians 4:26 and 27 just so I you recognize why I'm doing this we have the command to be angry and do not sin now the the word anger it here is in a uh, passive voice which means that something acts upon us what happens is we hit a situation and it's like somebody kicked us in the shin. We immediately scream and we're in pain. It, it's, it's just reflex. So something happens and we, we get angry. But what are we going to do with that anger? The same thing happens in every temptation. We are attracted to the bait that's in the trap. That's the analogy that James uses in James 1. But it's not until we go for the bait that we are sinning. And the same thing with anger. It's there. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to yell and scream? Are we going to uh, get violent? Are we just going to succumb to a lot of mental attitude sins? And this is what happens. Anger is sort of a gateway to a lot of sins. Mental attitude sins like bitterness, jealousy, resentment, vengeance. You know, we have this whole movement in this country about... Um, repayments to those who had ancestors four or five generations ago who were slaves. And I have a black pastor friend who says, if I really taught on this, they would fire me. He's honest. But what, he point, what he's pointing out is that there's still bitterness and resentment that has no place in the Christian life, no place in the church, no place in policymaking, no place in any of this, and yet that's what they're feeding. And so we can't feed our sin natures. We have these these mental attitude sins, and it happens in families. You, uh, maybe you have parents, or maybe you are a parent, and your child resents you for something. I know of a lady who was a very godly woman, and apparently her husband was as well, and she had a couple of daughters, and one of the daughters... Uh, went to some sort of psychotherapy and regressive memories, and all of a sudden she's making all this stuff up about abuse that nobody else in the family ever was aware of. 
And as a result of that, she had a great bitterness and resentment and anger toward her mother. And it just fractured the whole family. No sense of learning how to be forgiving, even if it was true. Okay, so you have those problems. You have outward things such as gossip and slander, which are sins of the tongue, and that can be a form of intimidation, expressing your anger in that way, or innuendo, uh, and physical acts such as violence and physical abuse and, and cruelty. But Scripture says, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Now, what, what of these spiritual skills is that referring? That refers to doctrinal orientation, orienting our thinking to the teaching of God's Word. And that's why we believe that the Bible, and only the Bible, has the answer. Uh, a verse I've been quoting before class for a long time, for Second Peter 1, 3, and 4, His divine power has given to us, whenever God is the subject, and the verb is given or gave or will give to us. Giving means grace. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten son. That's grace. So every time you see God is the subject of the verb to give, it's always emphasizing grace. In the next verse, it says, by which, by what? By his glory and virtue. That is an idiom, as I've taught, for summarizing the essence of God. By his virtue has been given to us. That's grace again. And he has given us exceedingly great and precious promises. That's dealing with the faith rest drill, which we studied last time, going to all those promises that are in the Scripture. Now, I've condensed some and certainly not tried to have an exhaustive list of promises in the book on God's God's powerful promises. And right now we're looking at getting that translated into Mandarin and also into... um, Afrikaans, hopefully that will take place this year, and getting the others uh, published, pushing that across the the finish line. But um, people have to learn the promises. That's God gave these those promises. That's that's going to that's faith rest drill, and it's orienting ourselves to the teaching of God's word. Same thing in Romans twelve two. We're to be transformed by the total renovation of our thinking. And we're not to be conformed to the world system, which is the spirit of the age. We can't think like the unbelievers think, whatever form that may, that may take. But the pressure to conform is, is always there. And so we must recognize that there's only two basic ways to go. We either think like God or we think like man. And the way that seems right to man is the way of death. That's repeated twice in Proverbs 14.2 and 16.25. And the fear of the Lord's a fountain of life. But to turn away from it, it, you go to the snares, the trap of death. Now, that's not eternal death. That's just living like a spiritually dead person if you're a believer. So we've also talked about the three enemies of every believer, the world, the flesh, the devil. The devil in five eight, first Peter five eight is our adversary. So he is out there laying traps, maybe not personally because he's not omnipresent, but through his demons and through various systems such as the world system. So the world system is just the way Satan thinks. It's those that are autonomous and independent from God. Uh, but these, it, you know, you get a lot of people get caught up, oh, the devil's doing this and the devil's doing that. And it doesn't matter where the temptation comes from in Scripture. The solution is always the same. And that is to trust the Lord, to walk by the Holy Spirit, uh, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The solution, it doesn't matter whether the source of temptation, uh, you're on a diet, and whether your mother is trying to give you chocolate cake or your husband is trying to give, your ch- give you chocolate cake or it's the next-door neighbor who brought a chocolate cake over. It doesn't matter where the temptation derives. What matters is the decisions we make. So the battle is between our ears. We don't have to go out and claim dominion over Satan. That's not biblical. Nowhere does it say that. It says resist the devil. 
It doesn't say go on offensive. That word for resist is a defensive term, not an offensive term. You're not to attack, take dominion. That's the role of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have those two, and then we have the internal enemy, which is our sin nature. And so we have this problem with the sin nature. So this is what we have to do. We have to constantly make this choice, whether we're going to try to uh, go to the fountain of living waters or whether we're going to uh, try to make our own cisterns. And that was the problem that Israel had. So as I showed you last time and the time before, it's either operating on the sin nature or on divine viewpoint. It's God's way or the devil's way. Moses put it this way, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. So we started going through this, and it's review, so I'm going to hit a couple of things really fast. We have this soul fortress, and that means that we as believers, are our eternal position is in Christ, and we never lose that. But in terms of our day-to-day life, we're either walking in the light, walking in the truth, walking by the Spirit, or being filled by the Spirit. They're all basically referring to the same thing. And that is our second skill. So we have this soul fortress. God is our rock, our fortress, our deliverer, our strength in whom we trust, faith, rest, drill. So we confess sin so that we are inside the soul fortress. Automatically, when we confess sin, we are shifted to walking according to the Spirit, and the Spirit will fill us with His Word. Confession of sin is in 1 John 1, 9. Isaiah 43:25 tells us that God blots out our transgressions and he will remember our sins no more. So if you feel guilty about something you've already confessed, that's a sin because you're not believing that God has separated you from those sins. So we're filled by the Spirit, and that is comparable to what Paul says in Galatians 5:16, walk by means of the Spirit says the same thing more extensively in Romans 8, that we're to not live according to the flesh, but we are to live according to the Spirit. And that is made more clear in 5.18. So as we go through Ephesians 4 and 5, everything that we, every verse we come to between here and Ephesians 6.9 relates to one of these skills. It's just fascinating. So we are to walk by the Spirit. When we're walking, which is a metaphor for living moment by moment, by means of the Spirit, then the Holy Spirit fills us with His Word. That's Colossians 3.16. And when the Holy Spirit fills us with His Word, then we have to decide, are we going to apply it or not? Are we going to do it God's way or my way? And so when we confess sin, we're inside the... um, uh, fortress and soul fortress, and then uh, we stay there by basically exercising the faith rest drill, where we trust God to fulfill His promises. We're relying upon biblical principles. We're thinking through what the Scripture says. So we grab a verse, a part of a verse. We mix it with faith, trusting in God. We do what it says to do, whether it's a mental attitude or with communication or behavior, and then we relax in God's provision and oversight. Psalm 56 is a great psalm with these promises. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? In God, I, w- I put my trust in verse 11. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So this is, these are great promises that we are to cry out to God and he will uh, protect us. We looked at Hebrews 4.12, 4.2 that talks about the Old Testament, the Israelites, that they did not mix faith with the promise of God. So these terms, I try to bring them out. They are biblical terms, biblical phrases as to how we should live. We are to cast our burden on the Lord, cast our care on Him, because He cares for us. So that's what we've covered. So grace orientation. Now this means that we are to align and conform our thinking to God's grace. We have to understand God's grace. That God's grace is does not come naturally to us. 
Some people from their sin nature can imitate graciousness, but because it comes from the sin nature, it always has that self-centered orientation. So we are going to learn how to conform our thinking to people, to situations, and to events with God's grace policy. Now let me give you a hint. You can't do this while you're watching the news. I'm convinced you cannot watch the news and maintain grace orientation. At least I can't do that. So I've quit watching the news. Uh, so grace means that God has freely given us everything that we need on the basis of who he is and what Christ did on the cross, that he's already given it to us. That's Ephesians 1-3 that we studied, that God has blessed us, past tense, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Not some of them, not most of them, not the ones you've learned about, but every. They're already our possession. We just have to learn about them. And where can you learn about them? The Word of God. That's the only way you can learn, is you have to study the Word. And it doesn't come overnight. Uh, it takes your, your lifetime. It probably takes 10 lifetimes, and you could still go further, because as long as we've got that sin nature, we're just never going to really overcome that. Uh, we can at times. It's not hopeless. So grace orientation involves a number of other things. It involves humility. It takes humility to go to the foot of the cross and look at Jesus and say, I'm trusting you to save me. Because what you're saying by that is, I can't do it myself. It demands humility. And you have to submit to the Lord and not think that you can somehow add something to it, uh, that you can somehow enhance what Jesus did. And see, that's the problem with several different denominational theologies is that they're always adding something to the work of Christ. But when Jesus was hanging on the cross, and the Apostle John describes this in John 19, he made it a point. There's redundancy in what he said. He said, when Jesus completed his work, to telestai, when it was finished. It's a perfect tense verb, which means a perfect tense is different from a past tense. Past tense is just something that happened in the past, but it may continue, uh, continue on. But a perfect tense, it's completed in the past. It's over and done with. It's something you, that was done centuries ago, and it was sufficient. It, he paid for all the sins. He didn't pay for some of them. And he didn't uh, forget some of your really embarrassing sins. He paid for all of them. That is the sufficiency of the cross. He paid for every sin. So there's no sin that you're going to confess to God that his omniscience wasn't fully aware of billions of eons ago. You're not going to surprise him. You may surprise yourself. You may surprise your spouse. You may surprise your parents. You may surprise your kids, but you can't surprise God. God didn't forget anything. It all went to Jesus on the cross. So he said, it is finished. That is, it has already been finished at that point. It was done and over with. Nothing uh, can be added to that. So in humility, we must go to the cross. Now, after the cross, we recognize that, that grace is a lot more than just accepting the free gift of salvation. There's grace after the cross. That's where we learn to love others. The, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. That's the very first thing mentioned is love. So the unbeliever has a, has a counterfeit imitation of love. But it's not the biblical love. It's not the fruit of the Spirit love, because the fruit of the Spirit love only comes as God the Holy Spirit is maturing you in your walk. So, so it's something that is supernaturally produced. But it's only produced as you walk by the Spirit. And we walk by the Spirit. Later in the passage, it says, sort of going step by step. It gets lost in the Greek translation. Uh, but it's that idea to go step by step. So uh, that is, as we develop spiritually, then um, we develop these other attributes, kindness, graciousness, 
to people who really don't deserve it because you didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. And so too often we want, well, you've got to be a lot nicer before I'm going to be nice to you. Well, that's not grace orientation. That's just legalism. That's self-centeredness. That's not the way God does it. So we need to conform or align our thinking uh, towards people, and it needs to be based on humility. So grace means that God has already freely given to us everything we need, whether it's for a prosperity test, which most of us fail, or whether it's a an adversity test. But we have everything we need. It's just in the Word of God. We have to learn it. We have to use it. We have to apply it. We have to shape our thinking with it. Grace means that our relationship to God is not based on our merit or our activities or our actions. So we have passages, third time I've mentioned this this morning, Second Peter 1, 3, and 4. His divine power has granted to us some of the things necessary for life and godliness. Is that what it says? Why do you think it says all things? Because he's given us everything necessary. That's, that is sufficiency. It's enough. You can't add to it. So the grace was sufficient at the cross. The cross is sufficient for salvation, paid for all our sins, and grace is sufficient for living the Christian life. And that means that if you go back in history, as I pointed out a couple of times, you you have from roughly 90 A.D. when... Uh, the canon of Scripture was completed in terms of writing. Now, not everybody had it, but it was completed in terms of writing up until about the 1870s. So you're talking about roughly 1,800 years where Christians could not solve problems of depression, discouragement, defeat, sorrow, sadness, being manic. You had all kinds of problems. And you go back and you study the lives of great theologians. There were some that had some real problems. But, oh, they didn't have psychotherapy, so they really couldn't do it. They didn't have uh, Valium, and they didn't have uh, Prozac, and they didn't have these other things. I actually heard somebody say one time, well, I can actually uh, walk by the Spirit now that I'm taking Prozac. No, you can't, because you're replacing the Holy Spirit with Prozac. How did those Christians live a Christian life without the value of the insights of Freud or any of the other psychotherapists of the last 150 years? Because they had the sufficient Word of God. It doesn't make your problems go away. It enables you to live above your problems. And he has given these precious uh, promises, mag- precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may be partakers of the divine nature. That is being conformed to the image of Christ. Jesus said, I give you my joy. There are a lot of Christians who live joyless lives because they don't know how to walk by the Spirit. They don't know how to claim promises. It doesn't mean that your your problems, whatever they are, your areas of weakness are always going to be your areas of weakness. I hate to tell you that. You can't rationalize it. You can't use that as a justification. But we have to learn to deal with that. And every one of us has different areas of weakness. Some are overt sins. Some are mental attitude sins. Some are sins of the tongue. But we all have them. And that's what it means to overcome evil. That's what Paul says in, I think, Romans 14. We have to be overcomers. So there's three areas of grace, and I'll just touch on these briefly and have to finish this up next week. There's grace before salvation. This is common grace. This is God being gracious to all humanity, fallen, rebellious, evil, sinful, people that you don't ever want your children to be around. God gives them grace. Matthew 5, 44 and 45. It's addressed to believers. He says, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. 
These are people you really don't like and be around, and yet you're to pray for them, you're to bless them, you are to pray for them, and you're to love them. Why? When he says next, he says, that you may be sons of your father. He's not saying so that you can become a Christian. That would be works. So that you can emulate your father. You got to go back to the Hebrew idiom, which says that somebody who is called a son of a murderer is because they have the attributes of being a murderer. Uh, A son of a fool is somebody who has the attributes of being a fool. So when it talks about being sons of your father, you're supposed to be displaying the attributes of God. And that's grace orientation. He says in the next verse, he says, that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So God's goodness extends to unbelievers. It extends to the worst unbelievers, to the vilest unbelievers, to those who are anti-God, anti-Christian. Oh, that was the Apostle Paul, wasn't it? Common grace goes to all. So that's that's a starting point. We are to treat them a certain way. Another way in which common grace is expressed is through the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 7 through 10, uh, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the comforter, the parakletos, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. So Jesus had to ascend to heaven so the Holy Spirit could come. That makes a world of difference for the spiritual life of this church age. But it makes a difference because when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to have a ministry to the unbeliever. When he comes, he will convict the world. What's the world in John? God loved the world in this way. So that's the world of unbelief, the world of unbelievers. And the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus explains it in the next three verses. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. They haven't yet believed in him. Second, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Because he displayed righteousness. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Satan was judged at the cross. So the Holy Spirit is going to be there to open the minds of the unbeliever to the truth of the gospel. So whatever you say, no matter how you fumble, stumble, crumble the gospel, the Holy Spirit's going to be there to take whatever it is that you mess up and make it clear to the unsaved person. So a lot of people say, I've heard people who've been believers for 15 years say, I don't know how to give the gospel to somebody. I'm afraid I'd mess it up. Well, so you still haven't gotten out of diapers as a believer yet. And look how much you think you've learned. But if you can't witness to an unbeliever, one of the first things I did, I was six years old. My parents gave me the gospel. I ran down the street and I told my best friend, you want to go to heaven? It's easy. You just get a free gift. You got to believe in Jesus. That's it. And yet we have people who are afraid to talk to people. The Holy Spirit is the one who works behind it. You just have to do the best you can, and the Holy Spirit is the one who applies it to that individual. Second, grace at salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not because of faith. It is through faith. Always you go to the passages on justification in Romans 3, Romans 4. It's always through faith. Through redemption through faith, because of God's love. That's the cause, not faith. You've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, that that refers to the whole phrase. You have some people who try to say that that refers to faith, that God gives you the faith first. No, it doesn't. You don't know Greek. Faith and grace are neuter, are, are feminine nouns. The that, the pronoun, is a neuter noun. Neuter noun has to refer to a neuter subject, unless you've got a complex subject, which you do here, grace, salvation, and faith. And then in Greek, they put the pronoun in a neuter case because it's referring to one masculine noun and two feminine nouns. 
So you have to do that. That's standard Greek, but so many people don't understand the original languages. It's how we were saved. It's not of works. It's not dependent upon us. So we need to treat other people on that same basis in kindness and gentleness. They don't have to earn our favor. If they have to earn our favor, then we're not very grace-oriented. That doesn't mean that we put ourselves in a vulnerable position necessarily or unprotected. Sometimes that's an issue. But often it's just that that we need to be more patient, long-suffering. That's a fruit of the Spirit also. For God loved the world in this way, is how the Greek should be translated, that he gave his only begotten Son. See, he's talking about an example of grace. He loved us in this way, gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. It's not believe and do good. It's not believe and be faithful. It's not believe and go to church. It's not believe and do works in keeping with repentance. It's just believe. Over 95 times, John writes in his gospel, believe, and it's never qualified. He never says truly believe. He never says sincerely believe he never says invite jesus into your heart invite jesus into your life same thing in acts it's always believe nothing else believe 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 what jesus died on the cross for your sins he was buried and rose again on the third day that that christ's death was sufficient so it, it it starts there we have to understand the sufficiency of the cross And then third, we have to understand grace after salvation, the sufficiency of Scripture, and the sufficiency of God's grace. 2 Peter 3.18 says, But grow by means of the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it doesn't say grow by means of singing praise songs to God. We are to sing praises to God. That is a byproduct of our walk by the Spirit, but that's not a means of spiritual growth. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Your word is truth. Didn't say anything about singing. Colossians 3.16 says that when we are letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us, we will teach and admonish others with the hymns and songs and spiritual songs, but they have to have enough content. I'm trying to explain that this morning in the hymns that we sang. Those hymns have enough content to teach and admonish one another. But most of the choruses that are sung today don't have enough content to teach a believer how to come in out of the rain. Second Corinthians 12.9, where we'll start next time, God says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So we'll come back next time as part of grace orientation and learn that God says that his grace is enough. You don't need anything else. You need grace. We grow by the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that means we have to know who Jesus is. There's a lot of Christians who say, I love Jesus. But they don't have a clue who Jesus is because they've never even read through a gospel all the way. We have to understand who who somebody is before we can love them. And it's just tragic that we live in an age that I'm not the only one, that hundreds of thousands of pastors and theologians and and, uh, Christian leaders bemoan the fact that we live in one of the darkest times in history as far as knowledge of Scripture goes. Most Christians are biblically biblically illiterate. They've never even read the uh, gospel all the way through, much less the New Testament or even the whole Bible. That's why we have up on the Dean Bible Ministries website these um, uh, read the Bible plans for reading the Bible all the way through. We have to know the Scripture. We have to hide it in our heart. So we'll come back next time and finish up on our grace orientation before we go forward to Uh, orientation to the teaching of Scripture with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us your word, that the light of our Savior broke into the darkness of the world, and that in him was life, and that was the light of men. But we're also warned that men love the darkness rather than the light, 
And so we struggle in a world of darkness, but we as believers are to shine forth with light. We are to shine forth with light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. So, Father, we pray that we might do that, but the way we do that is by growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, learning your word, applying your word, and then your light shines forth through us. Father, we also pray for those who may have never trusted in Christ as Savior, may have never clearly understood the gospel, may not even know much about who Jesus is. But Jesus Christ was the God-man eternal who entered into human history, took on humanity, and he went to the cross to die for our sins because he was sinless. He was without sin in all areas. And therefore, he could be our substitute. He died on the cross, and he bore in his own body on the tree, Peter tells us. And he paid for our sins as our substitute. God, in his uh, justice, imputed to Christ our sins because only Christ could pay for them. He didn't do it physically. He did it spiritually. He was separated from the Father for those three hours, and God judicially uh, punished him in our place and that we get that applied to us by simply believing trusting in him that is it so father we pray that god the holy spirit would open people's mind to understand clearly the gospel so that they might have everlasting life and we pray this in christ's name amen